What is good, everyone? This is your host, Deanna Kempel of Label Free Podcast. Live your best life. You must live label free. I am super pumped today. I have Brian. How do I pronounce your last name, Brian? Weinthal. Like the Weinthal. Brian Weinthal. He is a partner and an employment attorney with Burke and Warren, correct? Yes. Not only do I know Brian from the networking uh, events, but he's, you know, we're connected on LinkedIn and I had asked him to join me on the podcast to, to talk about some hot topics around the COVID-19 crisis. Um, so Brian, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and we're going to jump into all that juicy stuff. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you for having me here. It's thank an you. absolute pleasure. You look fantastic and I've watched the, <laughs> I've watched the program several times to get oh, ready. I'm really, <laughs> really excited to be here. It's a great show. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Brian Whitehall. I'm an employment lawyer. Background-wise, I'm a litigator. I focus mainly on employment law issues. Traditionally, that's been things like employment law, discrimination, retaliation, uh, harassment, uh, workplace policies, non-competes, things of that nature. Uh, but in this interesting COVID-19 world, I have very much shifted to answering questions for employers about what they do to deal with this virus and what they do in the wake of coming back to work here shortly. Uh, by background, I was previously with an Amlaw 100 firm, a larger firm, and before that with a smaller firm out in D.C. And prior to that, I started my life as a lawyer, as a member of the Navy JAG Corps, actually an officer in the military for about six years before I jumped out into private practice. So that's me in a nutshell, and I focus on employment law now. And I, that can, uh, there's always something with, I mean, I had several businesses with my late husband and it, that's necessary to have an attorney that is knowledgeable around employment law because things can get sticky. Um, so I know you had given me a list of questions that we could touch, touch on. Um, do you want me to ask them or do you want to just like jump right into it? <laughs> <laughs> I want you to. I want you to guide me through this because you are the leader here, and I am simply oh, okay. on your show. So you let me know how you want to tackle it. Okay. So I actually started looking at your questions prior to us recording, and I I really love them um, because I feel like before we start recording, I have a very strong opinion around this whole COVID nineteen, and I think that this is going to be very valuable for not only for our, my audience, but just you know everybody in general to understand what not only what employers are dealing with, but also what the employees' rights are as we continue to go back to work. Because I've been furloughed because of this as well. Um, but I also, I'm not very worried. <laughs> so we already had this conversation. So your first suggested question was, what are the most important new laws that have been passed during the last several weeks that employers need to be aware of in, a light, in light of the current COVID-19 pand pandemic? So the big one that I think employers need to be aware of is the FFCRA. Families First Coronavirus Response Act. It does two things primarily. First, it gives a period of paid sick leave to all American workers who work for companies under 500 people. That's an interesting one. No matter what kind of leave you may have on the books, sick leave, vacation time, etc., and no matter how much of it you may if you meet certain conditions under the FFCRA, you are entitled to two eight weeks of sick leave from your employer. Wow. That's unprecedented. We've never seen anything like that before. And the yeah. second thing the act does is it creates a period of paid family medical leave. Okay. I'm sure most people watching your program have probably heard of FMLA leave. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Family leave. Sure. Well, now, interestingly, whereas that leave was unpaid, the new FFCRA creates a period of paid family medical leave. So in other words, not simply being away from work unpaid, but getting your money, getting your pay at two-thirds of your pay rate 
during a limited 10-week period for certain COVID-19-related issues. And so, so do you... So do, do you or someone in your family have got to, do they have to show proof that they've tested positive for COVID-19? So let's break it down. So for paid sick leave, there are essentially six categories or things that can affect you that allow you to take advantage of that statute. The first is if you're experiencing COVID-19 symptoms. If you truly are at a point where you're not able to work or do your job, you are potentially eligible for paid sick leave under the statute. Secondarily, if you're caring for someone that has COVID-19, okay, if your child has fallen ill, an elderly parent, someone is dealing with COVID-19 in your family. Around those two situations, you can either get paid sick leave or going seeking a medical diagnosis for it. In other words, time you go to the doctor and seek out a doctor to get a test done. Or alternatively, helping out that person you're caring for get a medical appointment or medical care for them. In addition, you are a person who is at home, no daycare option, either because your child is out of school as a result of orders that have been put in place by the state. Or alternatively, if you do not have either someone else that can care for your kids at home with you, or a paid daycare provider that's available as a result of COVID. All of those six reasons are reasons you can get paid sick leave under the statute. Wow. If we, yep, if we shift gears, that's that's talking about that two weeks of paid sick leave that I first mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. If we're talking about paid family medical leave, it's the child care that kicks it off. You have a child that's out of school, a child who is doesn't have a paid daycare provider available at this point, or who, for whom there is no other adult in the house who are eligible for paid family medical leave. So they are all COVID-19 related reasons, um, and they are all opportunities for you to invoke either the paid sick leave or paid family medical that's very interesting. So, I mean, I know we have a lot more, more questions here, but I have a, um, so if you are, so how do you go about getting coverage through that? Do your employer and do the, That's right. do the employer know that they, that the employees have these rights? So employers are under an obligation by federal law to make their workplaces aware that these statutes are out there. Okay. They have three options to do that. The department of labor has put out a poster available on the Department of Labor website, which summarizes the statute. Sure. Employers can also email their workforces if they want to do it that way. Or alternatively, they can also post that on their websites. So ultimately, they have three different ways they must make their employees aware of that statute in one of those three different methods. So assuming the employees know about it, all they really need to do is ask their employer for the leave under the statute. Now, there are certain things employers can request for purposes of documenting that employees have those needs, but ultimately it's really just a matter of paperwork at that point. Interesting. Um, so you had the second question here is, are employers entitled to paid sick leave under the new FFCRA if they are, have already used most or all of the leave they previously had available? Yes, as I was, as I was mentioning earlier, no matter what you've used before, no matter what you have in the bank, no matter what it is you have access to, as you, on top of that, have two additional paid weeks of sick leave if, in fact, you manifest one of those six reasons under the FFCRA for invoking. So very powerful, very interesting statute. Congress has literally given employees additional time off if they're affected by COVID-19. Yeah, wow. Do employers receive any advantage from rewarding employees either paid sick leave or paid family medical leave under the FFCRA? They do. So it's interesting. Uh, the government has made have a 100% direct 
direct deduction against the employer payroll taxes that you pay for granting paid sick leave. So let's just use round numbers for a moment here. Let's assume somebody is at home and just for the sake of round numbers makes $100 a week. If you give them their full 80 hours, two weeks of paid sick leave, pay them the $200 they're owed, you can literally, if the employer subtract that $200 from the employer payroll taxes that you would ordinarily owe to the government. Sure. So there's a tremendous financial upside for employers to be good about this and to be honest about it and to accord their workforce. That's true for both the paid sick leave and the paid family medical leave. So those are very, very powerful deductions for employers that they want to use. That's huge for them. Because very much so. I, very I, much so. I had 150 employees. Our payroll taxes were huge. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. My. I mean, you, you can only imagine how this goes upwards from there. But yes, there's yeah. big advantages to it. Fingers crossed, you don't have a huge portion of your workforce down at any given point in time. I mean, that, that would be a bad. That would be a bad thing. But again, there are true advantages to making sure that people have access to the sick leave. Yes. I mean, it. it yeah, there is like, it's a double-edged sword, right? So not only, I mean, you're going to have employees that are going to take total advantage of it, you know, and because they take advantage of it, you're going to be able to, the employer is going to benefit from the tax side. However, you know, if you, you don't want all your employees to say, oh, you got to cover me because I've been affected, directly affected by COVID-19. And you know, you're going to see a lot of that. I mean, and now, and now you don't legally you, there, there's, you know, legally it really can't do anything. You are. Let me offer a caveat for the employers that are watching this. Um, one of the big criteria for awarding this at the same time is ensuring that you don't have paid telework available for employees. In other words, if you're an employer that has sent everybody home right now, everybody's at home in front of their computers doing their job there, unless you truly are too sick to perform the job, there is no paid sick leave available. So in other words, this paid sick leave is primarily for businesses that are still in operation and have people going to a centralized location. Sure. If someone is either asymptomatic or is suffering at a very, very slight level and is able to perform their work at home, there is no need for the employer to extend that work if they have telework. Yeah, so I was actually working from home until, the, until I got fur, furloughed, so that would not apply. So if I said, oh, I've, I have these symptoms, that wouldn't apply to me, then I couldn't take advantage of, of the FCRA, right? If, if, in fact, you were well enough to do the job, yeah. you truly are you know, bedridden with the inability to perform it, you can request it, and, and the employer is obligated to give it to you. Every time. Interesting. That's but it. if it's just simply feeling you know, fatigued, you're sick, and you're at home and able to do the job, there, there might be no need. It's a tough call. It's a judgment call to figure out what the severity of the uh, symptoms are. Sure. What type of documentation can employers request from employees who ask for either paid sick leave or paid family medical leave? So it depends on the nature or reason that that leave is being requested. If, in fact, you are at home as the result of either a medical diagnosis or you're seeking a diagnosis and the employer has the right to request the information on who your physician is that's giving you that diagnosis and giving you that advice. Sure. Alternatively, if you are in the situation where you are at home as the result of the inability to find somebody to care for kids during that period, you can request some additional information. Employers can ask for the names of the children that are being cared for. They can ask for the ages of the children that are being cared for. And in addition, they can ask from the employees statement as to why somebody is not available to care for those. In other words, why there's no family member available, why there's no paid care available. 
to take advantage of the tax benefit that the employer gets from paying the paycheck. The IRS has also said that for children over the age of 14, you need to specify a special reason why those kids might need care of their health, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the situation tends to cater towards families that have special needs children. That's usually the scenario we see between the ages of 14 and 18 as to why someone might need additional care at that point. Sure, sure. Um, are there any employers who can claim exemptions from the FFCRA? There are, but they're very limited and very few. So for employers to claim an exemption, in other words, for employers to say that I'm not subject to the FFCRA and don't have to award what's given there on, employers have to be under 50 employees. Okay. In other words, if you're greater than 50 employees, but less than 500, you have no exemption. You have no way out. For employers that are under 50 employees, the only things that you can gain an exemption from are the family medical leave parts of the FSRA. So in other words, paid sick leave remains in place. It's only those folks who are looking to remain home, care for kids, that can potentially be exempted as not having to pay for them. At that point, it's largely an economic decision. There are several statutory bases whereby the employer can say that the impact of paying a portion of the workforce to stay home and care for children is simply too great to allow us to stay in operation. And the real acid test is really, is this going to destroy the employer? It's going to wipe the employer off the face of the earth. The requirements are a little more technical than that, and I'm paraphrasing. But the idea is if you're going to take a financial wallet, it's so hard that it's going to end your operations, under 50, you can make a declaration that you exempt from the FFCRA. Interesting. Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to get a handle on what that's going to look like in the FBI. Yeah. The Department of Labor is largely allowing employers to police themselves. Okay. There hasn't been a lot of action or enforcement. And in fact, the Department of Labor said for the first 30 days of the FFCRA that they were not going to take any enforcement actions. I'm not aware yet as to whether they have taken actions now that that period has ended. And it seems as if they're allowing businesses to make their own judgment call on some of these things. But I guess time will tell. It's going to be sure. interesting over the next few weeks to see what oh, they gosh. do and where they go with this. I can't even imagine. Well, I'm going to have to follow up with you and just kind of under, like hear like what else is going on because I'm sure it's definitely going to be very interesting. I um, would love that. That's a chance to come back on the program. I love it. I'm excited. Hi, <laughs> Brian. I love you. You're awesome. Um, what should an employer do if it receives a report that one of its employees has tested positive for COVID-19? Ooh, this is good. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is good. And I think you've stumbled across the real, uh, the real landmine question on the, uh, on the sheet. To give you the answer, I have to tell you a little bit of a story. Okay. And I know you like stories, so let me give you, the, let me give you this one. So when COVID-19 first showed up on everybody's radar, the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, wrote on its website that employers can never tell any other employees somebody tests positive for COVID-19. And by that, I mean to say not that they can't tell people, but can't reveal the identity of the individual that's COVID-19 positive. Right, because the HIPAA laws and stuff, right? Well, the main reason they gave for that was the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. I read that and I was a bit confused because under the ADA, Typically, any conditions that are going to change or go away or ameliorate themselves aren't eligible for disability protection. People have tried. Influenza, pneumonia, broken bones, these are all bases that people can heal from and thus not 
disabilities under the Act. Sure. Interestingly, though, the EEOC did not provide a tremendous amount of legal analysis or rationale for why they said And even though every lawyer in the world started citing it, I looked at it and said, I'm a little concerned. Yeah. Because what I think is going to happen is that an employer is going to know someone is COVID-19 positive, not say anything, and then get sued by someone else who is in the workplace, yep. get sick and said, you knew about this and now it's your fault. Yeah. A big debate broke out in the employment community as to what that would look like. Well, I'm happy to say that four days later, Walmart was sued here in the Northern District of Illinois, here in Chicago, in a massive suit when an employee of theirs died. And the theory of the case is the fact that Walmart knew someone else at the store was COVID-19 positive, didn't say anything, and this individual got infected and died. Wow. So the takeaway lesson for employers is you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Right. Yeah. There's no right answer. You're in trouble for everything. So let me give you my best my best take on this one. You know, this is this is kind of where I'm where I'm spitballing a bit, but I think it's the right answer. If you're an employer who learns that one of your employees is COVID-19 positive, the first thing you want to find out is when the last time was that that person was there at the office. Right. Okay. In the workplace. When was the when was the point they walked out the door? No, they haven't been there since then. The second thing you want to find out is who were they around? You able to do any contact tracing? Able to figure out who they communicated with, who they spoke to, who they talked to? Do you know who they came in contact with? Sure. If you do, I think it is a very prudent practice for that small discrete group, or even a larger discrete group if necessary, to make them aware that that person tested positive and to let that group know A, keep an eye on your health, and B, if you are feeling any kind of way you shouldn't be feeling, stay away from the workplace get into quarantine, get medical help. Other than that, outside the contact tracing group, employers should absolutely let the workplace know that someone, without naming that person, is positive to keep the employees up to speed. And the employer should then engage in some type of deep cleaning program. Many of them that have been recommended by the CDC, making that workplace sanitary. From my point of view, the party foul associated with making someone else aware that someone's COVID-19 positive is far less than the impact of getting hit with a suit that says you knew about this and now someone's badly hurt. I feel bad for the people for whom the diagnosis might be revealed. But then again, any fear or embarrassment they might experience to me is outweighed by the risk that a senior citizen, or a child with asthma, or someone one of your other employees is coming to contact with might be put at risk. And if you're the employer, you're theoretically you're pretty safe life by making the decisions. Tough situation. I do not envy people that have to get in that space to make the judgment call. But I think what the reality is is that we're going to have to look at the aftermath. We're going to have to Monday morning quarterback this. Yeah. And think what a year from now we'll be thinking where the prudent decisions going back at this point in time. So I worked for Career Builder. That's who I was working for on LaSalle. Uh, in in um, tech sales, and when this all happened, there was somebody that co- that tested positive for COVID nineteen. So what they did was, um, they had furloughed us, and then we got a, a, an email saying that someone had tested positive, and they sent it sent a letter out say, saying saying that, and then they had called the people directly that were around the person that was in, that was infected or that tested positive. So I still don't even know who it was. 
but I feel like they handled it pretty well, like what you just said. And I think that um, just that they they took they did damage control and they took the precautionary measures to alert everyone and call the people that were in direct contact of the person that tested positive. So, um, so yeah, I would agree with what you said. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good plan. I think it makes a lot yeah. of sense. Um, again, there's going to be so much retrospect that goes on with this. It's going to be fascinating to see what that looks like in the years to come. Yeah, I think I think most people looking at history will look at employers and say, "How did you act? And was it reasonable in that in that moment?" Well, we kind of already touched on the next question about revealing the identity of employees who test positive, and I, you know, they can't. I mean, I, I know that that would be a big, big no-no because we only have about t less than ten minutes here. Because I know you have a meeting, a meeting soon. <laughs> what? Oh, this is a good one. What do you see as the most significant challenges for employers when businesses reopen? This will be good. The preliminary challenges that I think are going to be overwhelming are the concept of making social distancing work at work. You know, I, now I'm, I'm sure like me, you know, you've been on 100 million Zoom calls over the course of the past few weeks. Um, what does a meeting look like? If an employer wants to have a meeting, can it have a meeting in the workplace? We have, and I'm sure most employers probably don't have the ability to maintain the six-foot social distancing that we think we need to have in place as we go back. The facilities challenges are going to be big ones for employers. Where you meet, how you meet. I think the idea for employers is we're probably going to want to keep as much distance working as we can at this point in time, whether that be remote work, meetings from our offices with video cameras, however that's going to be, whatever that's going to look like. The idea of a bullpen, you know, where you have a hundred or so people sitting yeah. in Cubicle City in the middle of the workplace, is probably not going to be a feasible thing. And employers are going to have to struggle with what that looks like in their current facility and with their current space. Putting aside the, the logistics issue. How do you bring people back? Bringing people back in phases. Okay. X number of people coming back to the workspace over a Y amount of time. See if we have any incidents. See if we have any issues. If we don't, potentially move to the next group that comes in. Or the next group sure. back. They're, the employers are going to have to also struggle with the idea because it's going to happen of someone testing positive despite the fact that they're putting their best measures in place. So, what does a shutdown then look like? You identify someone positive at that point. Send all your employees back home again. Stop. Take a pause in the workday to put everybody out and see people cleaning. An interesting question. In my mind, the key to this whole thing is just twofold, really. I think employers need to have a multidisciplinary team working on what a coming back to work plan looks like. Sure. In other words, I think employers have to have a group of people from different departments that do different things giving their opinions as to how to keep everybody in those functions safe, that team working together to recommend a plan overall. And the second important thing I think they're going to need to have is patience and a reliance on continued remote work for a little while as we slowly but surely phase people back. I don't think it's going to be like flipping a light switch where we're all going to be back at work one day suddenly with you know the whole world coming back to back to normal as it were. Yeah, I mean, what like they keep saying, like, what is the, this is the new normal? Do you and actually, this is not part of your questions, but do you think that the social distancing is here to stay, or is it just until this this boils over and things come come back to normal and the the peak scare of this is has passed? I don't. I, I couldn't tell you about the peak scare because, as you and I joked about before we started recording, it's difficult to get reliable statistics, and of course, the news tells you a different number and a different. 
pattern and prediction every every single day. For what it's worth, I don't think social distancing is permanent. Good. Um, I think we will hopefully get back to a normal world of physical space and contact and working together at some point. But it's going to take time and it's going to take some patience. That's that's going to be the real aggravating factor for everybody. I think, is the concept that we will get back to normal, but it's going to take some time. Um, it's going to take some time and dedication on our part to stay healthy and prevent the spread of, of illness as best we can. If we can get our heads around that, that it's temporary, if we can get our heads around the fact that it's just something we do to keep ourselves safe for a limited period of time, yeah, it's daunting and it stinks, but it's manageable. It, it's at least, right. it's, at least it, it's at least survivable is the idea. And I think we all got to treat with a grain of salt. We're all working in odd ways that don't fit our traditional work method. Everybody's discombobulated. You know, if I go five minutes without cartoons, you know, too loud in my background on my Zoom call, it's a, it's a miracle. Um, <laughs> but we're just going to have to be patient with ourselves and with each other. Yeah. But I don't think it's permanent. I do think we will get back. I do think we'll beat this virus. No, no question about it. Sure. Um, but it's going to be a little bit of a trek to get there. That's the problem. I like that. That, that gives me some hope that you, that you feel the same way. Um, one more question, and we're going to wrap it up because I know you've got to go. Um, I think this is a good one. Are there are there risks to employers for failing to comply with the FFCRA? There are. Um, the FFCRA, like most federal statutes, has provisions that don't allow you to retaliate against employees for requesting paid sick leave. So, for example, Jones walks into the workplace. Jones says to his employer, "I really need some time off, some paid sick leave, because I'm dealing with COVID-19 symptoms." If the employer fires Jones, employer can get in big trouble for doing so because it technically just retaliated against Jones sure. for voting the right to paid sick leave. So there are big penalties that employers can pay for discriminating and retaliating on the basis of takes the leave. Very important to distinguish that for just one second for the employers watching from the idea of taking workplace action that affects everybody. For example, Jones says, I request paid sick leave. And the employer announces tomorrow well, because things are so bad economically, we're closing. Everybody is terminated. Jones has not been uniquely discriminated yet. In other words, right. Jones is not going to have a ground to proceed against the employer if everybody in the workplace has been sent home. Sure. So a big difference between the individualized retaliation and workplace action. So employers don't lose their right to control their workforce, to designate who needs to do what, who can go where. But they have to be very careful about not making decisions based on individual people's choices to leave to select the leave or take the leave under the FFCRA. Interesting. All right. Well, Brian, thank you so much. We'll have to, we'll have to have a follow-up in, um, in a couple of weeks when things start getting more back to normal. I actually had a call today from AT&T saying that their stores open back up. So there are, so they are slowly starting to open things back up, which is hallelujah. Praise the Lord, because <laughs> we need to get back to like some kind of, some kind of semblance of regular life. <laughs> That's right. Um, but so we'll definitely have to have a follow-up, um, follow-up episode. So, Thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to share with, with the audience? No, just, I'll, I'll tell you this, Deanna. You are a fantastic host, incredible networker, and I am truly grateful to you for having me on. Um, I would say to the employers that are out there, boy, if you have questions, give somebody like me a call. It's not worth trying to go through this alone. You have a network. You have a community. That's what Deanna and I do. We rely on our network and our community for great advice about things. So if you're having trouble with this stuff, definitely reach out. Yeah. And I'll, I'll put all your links for them to contact you directly in your firm so that if they do want to come to you, that they can. So um, 
As always, you guys, thank you so much for your support. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, comment, and share. This is Deanna Kempel, your host of Label Free Podcast. To live your best life, you must live label free. Thank you, Brian, for being a guest, and I look forward to having you back again very soon. That's great. Thank you, Deanna.